Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear from an author who followed the old Pony Express route across the Mountain West. The Pony Express emerged as really an avenue for me to to see the West in its whole. Then the mayoral race in Salt Lake City is getting national attention. Salt Lake City is to Utah the way Austin is to Texas. We're a blue dot in a red sea. And hummingbirds are migrating across the Rocky Mountains. The hummingbirds are just all around us, almost like insects. There's so many of them. It's just a, a paradise out here. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. When author and journalist Will Grant decided to write a book about the Pony Express, that's the horseback mail service that is part of the lore of the American West, he approached researching the project in a very hands-on way. In the summer of 2019, he rode 2,000 miles of the historic route that runs between Missouri and California and goes through the Rocky Mountain states of Wyoming and Utah. Grant traversed the trail on horseback with his two equine companions, Badger and Chicken Fry. He writes about his experience in his new book, The Last Ride of the Pony Express, My 2,000-Mile Horseback Journey into the Old West. And he spoke with KVNF's Taya Jay on the show, The Pen and the Sword. So the Pony Express was a mail service set up in 1860 to deliver letters, letter mail, from the Missouri River to California. At that time, in 1860, there were about 380,000 people living in California. And the Missouri River was really the edge of the United States. At, at that time, there was very little American sovereignty or influence or settlement between uh, St. Joseph, Missouri and California, except for the Mormon settlement at Salt Lake. So the Pony Express was set up as an express letter service that would deliver mail in 10 days between the end of the railroad in Missouri and everyone in California. And it, it was a brief venture. It only lasted about 19 months. And it made about 150 trips uh, back and forth. The mail went both westbound and eastbound. And it successfully reached its 10-day schedule uh, for quite a bit of its lifespan, which is impressive. But even more impressive is that it only lost one mailbag. And so it was a fast horse mail relay. So they would travel as quickly as possible, get on a fresh horse, and make the relay of about 100 miles per rider in eight hours or so, and then hand off the mail to a next rider. So in this way, these these saddlebags with letters would hurdle across the continent at the speed of a galloping horse. And that's pretty much the way it worked out. Uh, it was so short, 19 months, because it was just prohibitively expensive. 
but it certainly occupies a prominent space in the mythology of the American West and the developing West. And it has cast a really long shadow in the history books. There, it seems that almost everyone you ask knows what the Pony Express was, that it was fast horses carrying the mail. And that's basically the way it shook out. I'm curious, Will, before the Pony Express, how was the mail being delivered? That was a question that came up for me while I was reading this book, because I'm not sure I know that. Of course, I know about the Pony Express, but what was going on before? So before, if you wanted to send a letter from somewhere in Missouri to California, it went by way of stagecoach through a southerly route that went through El Paso. Like it went from Fort Smith, Arkansas, down toward El Paso, briefly dipped into Mexico, and then came up into California via San Diego and Southern California. And so that was about a three-week schedule, anywhere from like 23 days to 30 days. You mentioned that it only lasted 19 months, but as you identify in the book, it was iconic in shaping our popular understanding of the American West, the psyche of the American West. Will you talk about why you, on a personal level, were drawn to wanting to take this journey and what it was you were setting out to better understand about the Pony Express? Sure. So I have loved horses my entire life. I have always wanted to be around horses. I've loved riding horses. I I don't remember learning to ride. My earliest memories are of being on horseback are are just riding. Wow. I never remember anybody telling me like, oh, this is how you turn the horse left. This is how you stop them. Somehow, you know, I, I picked it up at an early age. So, and I, I trained horses professionally after college before I turned to journalism. So for me, the Pony Express was really a pinnacle of horsemanship. It was something that I heard about. The first time I was exposed to the Pony Express was a TV series called The Young Riders. And I clearly remember this the opening sequence of that show. So I went to journalism school in t- 2008. And then I worked mostly for Outside Magazine as well as a few other publications in the West. And I was trying to find a way to write a book about the larger idea of the American West. And with my love of horses and my ability to handle them and my working knowledge of horses, the Pony Express emerged as really an avenue for me to, to see the West in its whole. And, and from a really tangible perspective, the fact that it was a trail that crossed the West from Missouri to California really lent itself to a end-to-end of all the different landscapes and the people and the situations and the scenarios. And so that's really what I wanted. I wasn't looking to prove anything on horseback. I wasn't looking to ride every single mile. I didn't hold myself to any standards in that way. What I wanted was to really learn about the people of the West You know, I think that the best way to interpret landscapes is through the people that live within those landscapes, are subject to those landscapes. 
And that's really what I wanted. You know, the Pony Express is a very cool mail service. It was a interesting flash in the pan for the development of the West. But what I really wanted was a boots on the ground look at the modern cultural West. Right. Yeah, I think you call it, you use the word transect of the American West. And I really love that as a sort of definition for what it was you were trying to observe or achieve. I want to delve in a little bit and talk about sort of some of the defining characteristics of the West that you identify throughout the journey. And one of the themes to me that you maybe don't state directly, but is very palpable in the pages and the stories of the people that you meet along the way is generosity. Can we talk about the ways that you connected and coordinated with the folks that you stayed with along the way, the folks who offered you respite from the trail? I will say that the generosity of people was a really reassuring and encouraging aspect of my trip. I could not have asked for more hospitality. And it's great on a personal level, it's really great for me to know that uh, that a traveling horseman, a passerby horseman, still has uh, open gates and open doors and friendly, welcoming people throughout the entire journey. You know, so the journey was 142 nights. That's five months. And there's only one place where I was turned away hmm. when I asked to camp there. And mm -hmm. that was a ranch in Nebraska who told me that their insurance would not cover me camping on their land. But that was the only place where I had to sort of like reboot or like go to plan B. And so I think that people were encouraged by what I was doing and inspired in a way that I was riding across the West, that I was traveling with these two horses and that I was I always tried to be as polite as possible. You know, I really think that whenever you travel, no matter where you go, manners are really important. You have to be good to be around. And so I would always try to be as, as compliant and humble and, and grateful as I could be. And it really paid off, you know, because I found open arms everywhere I turned. And I also think to this that people really cared about my horses. Mm. You know, the fact that I was traveling with Chicken Fry and Badger really struck a sympathetic note with a lot of people. You know, these are rural places. So these are farms and ranches. These people generally have animals in their lives. And I think that if I had just been a backpacker or a cyclist, I may not have found the same level of hospitality because people actually worried more about the well-being of chicken fry and badger than they did about me. Will Grant, author of The Last Ride of the Pony Express, my 2,000-mile horseback journey into the Old West, speaking with KVNF's Taya J on the show The Pen and the Sword. And you can catch the entire interview at kvnf.org. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. Salt Lake City voters are deciding on who will be the next mayor in its municipal election taking place in November. The mayoral race is getting national attention because one of the candidates, Rocky Anderson, was a progressive icon in the American West 
when he served as mayor of Salt Lake City more than 15 years ago. To find out more about the mayoral race, I spoke with Lara Jones, executive producer and lead host of Radioactive, KRCL's weeknight public affairs programme. Lara, it's great to have you join us here on the Roundup. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Tell us what's happening with the mayoral race in Salt Lake City. Well, it's a matchup among the uh, incumbent, Aaron Mendenhall, who's being challenged by former Salt Lake City Mayor Rocky Anderson. He was mayor from 2000 to 2008. He was mayor during the Olympics, right after 9-11 as well. And he has a long track record as an attorney, a civil and human rights advocate. And in fact, after he left office, he went on to run for president with the Justice Party, I believe it was, an organization that he helped start up. There is a third candidate. That's a a long shot candidacy. Michael Valentine, who has kind of built his profile on trying to salvage a historic theater, the Utah Theater on Main Street, in fact, chained himself to it before it was torn down and the city had sold it to developers for a high rise apartment building right in the heart of Salt Lake City. Well, Rocky Anderson has thrown his hat back in the race and As I said, this race is getting quite a lot of national attention, very likely because of Rocky Anderson's participation in this. But he's a Democrat, but he's challenging the incumbent mayor, Mayor Mendenhall, who's also a Democrat. Just to give listeners who aren't familiar with the political landscape of Utah and Salt Lake City, give us a sense of how the politics of the city of Salt Lake compares to what's happening statewide in Utah. And then we'll get into why Rocky Anderson is now running again. Salt Lake City is to Utah the way Austin is to Texas. We're a blue dot in a red sea in a state that is a supermajority for Republicans. At the same time, we're the capital city. So we have a huge megaphone. So does the mayor. At the heart of, I think, this race is Utah's struggle with growth and housing. And front and center is how we deal with care for those folks in our community who are experiencing homelessness. Rocky Anderson feels it's something he dealt with well when he was mayor, and that's the stone, the big stone he's throwing at uh, Mayor Mendenhall. Mayor Mendenhall is saying things have changed. The landscape is radically different. Everything is exponentially bigger and harder, more multifaceted. And also she uh, has a good claim to say, hey, I've re- invested our state players and our surrounding county players in the issue of homelessness the way no other mayor has. So I'm sure when I moderate a debate later in September, that is going to be one of the primary uh, conversations at the debate. And candidate Valentine says, you know, I've experienced homelessness firsthand. And what he says he would do is on day one, a public health emergency on homelessness. It's not clear what that would do in terms of unlocking any powers or money. Most naysayers say it's uh, an interesting stand to take, but wouldn't do much. So we're going to see what plays out as the conversation continues to the general. And by the way, because we have a congressman who has stepped down or will be stepping down, um, that race, Congressional District 2, is on the ballot, and it's bumped all of our elections back. So the primaries a couple weeks later, and our general will be a couple weeks later. So it's going to be a while before we know the shakeout of this election uh, for the city mayor, but also our Congressional District 2. The fact that homelessness is such a key issue in this particular race, it's very reminiscent of another recent Rocky Mountain City mayoral race in Denver. 
That race just happened this year as well. Homelessness was the issue that all the candidates were talking about. So the reality of homelessness, what does that look like in Salt Lake City right now? A couple of years back, we radically changed how services are provided to folks experiencing homelessness. We congregated services downtown. We actually spent the last, I would say, 30 years making that happen, putting the 4th Street Clinic, which is its own independent nonprofit, down there, putting St. Vinny's Kitchen, uh, also the Road Home Homeless Shelter. Downtown property, in the meantime, values have been going up. So a couple years ago, we split that up into resource centers, and they were placed in three different areas. But guess what? The number of beds that uh, it replaced didn't add up to the amount that were lost. So we typically have greater needs, especially during extreme weather, whether that's winter or summer. And recently, a law was passed saying every county needs to have its emergency plan for winter. And so those are starting to come into play across the valley. We're waiting to hear where there might be an overflow in the city, in the county, and surrounding counties. And that is going to affect this mayoral race. Because, again, uh, Mayor Mendenhall in particular has been saying for years, back when she was even on the city council, this is not just a Salt Lake City problem. This is a statewide problem, and we need all stakeholders at the table. The mayoral election, like all elections in Salt Lake City, will actually be ranked choice voting. And that is something that is just coming into other Rocky Mountain cities Boulder, the city of Boulder, Colorado, will for the first time have its municipal elections as ranked choice voting this this November. But Salt Lake City has been doing it for a few election cycles. Can you just let folks know what ranked choice voting is? Sure. So ranked choice voting is exactly like it sounds. You rank the candidates first, second, third, fourth. Or not at all. Maybe you just vote for the one candidate, but you have the option to rank them top to bottom. And in theory, the philosophy is it can encourage more civility among candidates because if you're not a voter's first choice, well, you definitely don't want to offend them and end up being their last choice. So in that way, ranked choice voting is thought to encourage civility. And in 2018, the Utah legislature passed HB 35 that established a pilot where cities could choose to do ranked choice voting in their elections. And Salt Lake City has done that for a couple of cycles. It'll happen again. In fact, we didn't have a primary for mayor because we're using ranked choice voting and that in theory saves a lot of money. Although if you're a Republican (laughs) and you wanted to have a say in who goes to the general for congressional district two, we did have a primary. But we also use mail-in balloting by and large, which is, I think something voters have embraced. It gives them the opportunity to research the candidates. And I think with ranked choice voting, again, the candidate has to remember, hey, they've got that ballot. Have they filled it out yet? I want to know if I'm number one or two. So ranked choice voting will be interesting to see uh, what happens election night. And that date will be November 21st. Well, in terms of ranked choice voting in Colorado, it's been in a few different communities for a while in Carbondale and Basalt and Telluride. But in terms of statewide, as you mentioned there with Utah lawmakers here in Colorado in 2021, There was a bill that was passed allowing ranked choice voting in nonpartisan elections. Essentially, it allows municipalities to refer municipal elections to ranked choice voting. 
Interestingly, another Rocky Mountain state, Wyoming lawmakers there rejected ranked choice voting in Wyoming earlier this year. Well, it's interesting in Utah, both Democrats and GOP have used ranked choice voting at uh, conventions. And in 2021, 23 cities in Utah voted to hold ranked choice voting elections, including Salt Lake City, obviously. So I think it's gaining some ground, whether it satisfies voters that they are getting to choose their politicians as opposed to the other way around, I think still is an open question. Well, Laura Jones with KRCL, thank you so much for breaking down the Salt Lake City mayoral race with us here on the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Regional Roundup. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. Laura Jones is the executive producer and lead host of Radioactive on KRCL in Salt Lake City. You can catch full episodes at krcl.org. And in an update to our conversation, Salt Lake City Mayor Mendenhall just announced the creation of a new temporary shelter community in downtown Salt Lake City. About 50 people will be sheltered in small pods or trailer type units. And Mayor Mendenhall says that this will serve as a type of pilot programme and it's something that can be recreated virtually anywhere. Well, we finish out today's show with a look at hummingbirds. They're a common sight in Colorado, Utah and Wyoming, but many species are migrating this month south to Mexico, where they'll spend the winter and early spring before they come back to the Rocky Mountains in April. KGNU's Shelley Schlender paid a visit to one Colorado hummingbird expert to find out more. I'm Steve Baricious. I live in Peaceful Valley, Colorado. Steve's Peaceful Valley cabin was built in the 1930s by his grandfather. That grandfather loved hummingbirds. He kept hummingbird feeders out all summer, filled with a food similar to the nectar of flowers. It's fresh sugar water. Steve Barishas keeps up the tradition with dozens of sugar water feeders that draw loads of hummingbirds. That whirring sound comes from hummingbird wings. Hundreds of hummingbirds zipping around, flashing greens and orange and patches of red. Watching it all is Boulder naturalist Ruth Carol Cushman. The hummingbirds are just all around us, almost like insects. There's so many of them. It's just a, a paradise out here. You probably do a lot of that, just sitting and enjoying Steve Barishas agrees that it's a paradise. Yes, in between filling feeders, yes. <laughs> Steve's got nearly two dozen feeders out today, which he's constantly filling with sugar water. Already this morning, he says... I made roughly nine gallons of sugar. That's nine gallons of sugar water just today. Plus, the cabin's next to a wildflower meadow and a babbling brook. All this appeals to hummingbirds. So right now, we are running a combination of flowers and feeders to attract the birds. And, of course, the other attractant are the insects that seem abundant here and along the river. Uh, Currently, I'm running about, uh, I think, 20 or 20. 21 feeders. Normally through the summer I'll have 16 to 18 feeders out. My next door neighbor also runs about 18 feeders. And together, given our sugar usage, I calculate we're attracting a minimum of 15,000 individual hummingbirds daily. You heard that correctly. Steve Barishas says that during late summer, 15 thousand hummingbirds come to his peaceful valley cabin every day. It's really quite amazing. Many people think of hummingbirds as 
rather solitary creatures, but in fact, it's pretty obvious they're a very gregarious lot. Their interactions, while competitive, and they have to be competitive to, to gain the, the food resources and keep those in order to survive, they also need that interaction for breeding, for establishing territories. One hummingbird feeder is hanging almost over our heads, so Steve Baricius moves it out of the way. A little later, Boulder naturalist Ruth Carol Cushman says this. I've been noticing as we are sitting here, the hummingbirds keep coming back to that empty space where you removed a feeder. So they also learn where the feeders are even when the feeders are gone. Yes, hummingbirds have a fine sense of location. Scientists have determined that they can remember 5,000, 5,500 flower locations. So when they return in the spring, they know just where to go to find those particular flowers and plots of flowers. We see this with the feeders. I've seen this ever since a childhood, where in the spring, before I'd put out a hummingbird feeder, they're there knocking on my window, literally <laughs> knocking on the window asking where the feeder is. And this may be in the middle of April and we'll have 25 or 30 inches of snow on the ground and these are the early arrivals who are coming to established territories. So sure enough, I get feeders out very quickly for them. Do they ever light on you when you're trying to hang a feeder? And it... uh, generally no, but they'll come very close. I think they know what is a threat and what is not, and they, uh, I believe pretty surely, they, they know that we're not to be feared. When we carry a feeder out to replace one that's empty, they follow us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll perch on the feeder before we, as we're even walking toward the location. Now that it's fall migration, the hummingbirds are tanking up. There are so many, it's a blur. But sitting next to Boulder naturalist Ruth Carol Cushman is Boulder County Audubon President Scott Sievers, who, among other things, is an ornithologist. Scott Sievers is an expert on birds, including seeing birds. So among the dazzling green and orange birds and red-throated and white-throated and green-throated hummingbirds zooming between the feeders, Scott singles out one that's kind of orange. It's a small hummingbird, and it's chasing a larger hummingbird. Well, yeah, I am seeing a juvenile rufous hummingbird over here. And the way I can tell is rufous hummingbirds have this rusty orange color. I like to call them little orange fluffballs. That little orange fluffball is chasing other hummingbirds away. And they're very aggressive because they have the longest distance to migrate of all our hummingbirds. So they've acquired this aggressiveness so that they can make sure they've acquired enough food to make that migration. That young Rufus was probably born last spring near Washington State. This fall, it might travel to central Mexico. Next spring, it might be up around California. Also at the feeders is a slightly larger hummingbird that's shades of emerald and forest green. During the summer, this broad-tailed hummingbird is common here. It's likely to winter over 2,000 miles away in Guatemala. Fall migration has already begun, so you might spot a broad-tailed hummingbird passing through your backyard. With that in mind, Boulder naturalist Scott Sievers gives this detailed description. The females have a white throat, and the males have a deep red throat that really shines in the sun. Uh, a lot of people, they call them ruby-throated hummingbirds. Well, they're not. They're broad-tailed hummingbirds. And probably the best distinction is that trill that we've been hearing all this time. Broadtails probably have the 
most musical wing of all our hummingbirds, and it's produced by a little slot out at the tip of the wing that, when it gets up to speed, makes the trilling noise that we're hearing. That was an excerpt from KGNU's weekly science show, How on Earth. You can catch the entire episode at howonearthradio.org or kgnu.org. And thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to KVNF, KRCL and KGNU for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.